one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Andrew. And I'm Freddie. And on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we reflect on the first week back in Parliament, PMQs, and how Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer's 2023 is going so far. So Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer met across the dispatch box for the first time this year, yesterday. It was on a day when paramedics and 999 call handlers were striking. So that gives you a bit of a sense of what was going on in the real world outside Westminster. So the stakes were really high in this conversation. What do you think the dividing lines were that were being drawn out by the two leaders? Freddie, you were in the chamber. Yes, I think that gave it a little bit more of a sense of urgency. There was a sense that was something that was at stake. And I think Starmer was trying his best to really hold the government to account on the NHS. One of the key things he did, which is quite new, and I think it worked quite well this time, was actually try and directly compare the state of the NHS in 2010 to where it is now. They've also done this in the past two years, but that's always been quite tricky because we've Mm -hmm. had the COVID pandemic, so the government were able to point to that and blame the pandemic for the state of the NHS. But I think COVID's slightly receding in the political imagination now. So it it opens up a bit of a gap for Starmer to make those comparisons and remind people what the NHS was like under Labour. There was quite a lot of jeering and heckling from the Tory benches when Starmer tried, as it were, to put brackets around the Covid experience. You can't put brackets around a pandemic. But there is no doubt, if you look at the numbers, that Labour has a strong point comparing the condition of the NHS, waiting times and so forth and staffing with when they left office and where we are now. And that has been a longer story than the pandemic, obviously. But no, I thought it was a very feisty exchange. As we saw at the latter part of 2020, to Starmer was more self-confident, smiling, enjoying himself more, easing into the role, probably on the back of those polling numbers. And Sunak, as last year, was perhaps more aggressive, more political than we expected. Yes, a bit more defensive. And it was interesting because he did come clean-ish about his use of private healthcare in the past, something that he came a bit unstuck with over the weekend, refusing to answer the question about whether his family uses private healthcare. He said that is registered with it. He called it an NHS GP, even though GPs aren't NHS, but had used independent healthcare in the past. Freddie, why did he feel the need to say that? Does it show his political naivety that he didn't just tell the truth in the first place? And how much do we actually know? Yeah, we still don't know the full extent of what he's used on what he's used in the past. This originally comes from the interview with your Laura Koonsberg back on Sunday and he refused to answer the question four times. Koonsberg made 
the good point of comparing it to Margaret Thatcher in the 1987 election when she was very adamant and clear that she was happy to have private health insurance and she explained why. The contrast was clear. And then the other thing I thought was interesting about that episode was the way he appealed to privacy was very similar to what he did last April, I think, when the debate over his wife's tax affairs became really clear. That again, and that didn't go very well, okay? So we knew that wasn't going to work. You're going to get journalists asking every single day, so does he have a private doctor? Does he have a private health provider? And eventually, in PMQ's right at the start, he tried to clarify it. I think that's a really good point there, because in a sense, nobody is going to be surprised at all that a very wealthy man has a bit of private health insurance. That happens right across the board in this country. Labour politicians uh, should be and are embarrassed if they're caught out with private health insurance. It's not the same for Tories. Mm -hmm. But I think the defensiveness, and Freddie's absolutely right, is more about... He, he feels and Labour feels that his private arrangements around his marriage and money and all of that are a potential line of attack for the opposition and he is trying to build defensive walls before that happens. Now, this one came down very quickly. Well, something that I thought was interesting, and it's just a small thing, but the person who asked that question was Cat Smith in a backbench question. Keir Starmer didn't ask him about it directly. And this is a little bit how they deal with the Prime Minister's extreme wealth as yeah. well. Keir Starmer and the Shadow Cabinet generally Rises try and stay it. off <laughs> yeah. And is that a sign that Labour know that perhaps, like you say, Andrew, the public aren't going to be particularly surprised that someone who is so rich has private health care? And also, as we know, more and more ordinary people are turning to private health care with the state that the NHS is in. Something going on underneath the surface that people don't talk about at the moment is the more headlines we get about the crumbling NHS, the collapse of the NHS, the numbers of people dying in ambulances or in car parks or being left in corridors, the more quiet, quietly and privately around the country people are thinking, do you know what, I'm going to put a few hundred quid into private health care. I'm going to avoid the system entirely. Now, nobody wants to talk about this yeah. because they want to defend the NHS and they don't want to acknowledge the big growth of private health care in Britain, but it's real. The big American companies are all opening private hospitals around London. Money is pouring into private health in this country. And I think that is part of the health story that's not being told properly. Yes, it's true. And it's tricky for Starmer. I thought one of the blows that Sunak did manage to land in PMQs yesterday was about this idea that Labour were discussing more outsourcing into the health service. Starmer having said that he was against that previously, Sunak picked up on that and perhaps he knew that there might be a little bit of tension between the, what the Shadow Health Secretary Wes Streeting's been coming out with and the direction of some of the other individuals in the Shadow Cabinet. Yeah, I mean it's always a very tricky topic for Labour to broach. I think this comes from multiple things. Wes Streeting has said that he's in principle just generally open to the private sector and public sector working together whether that's in health or elsewhere. Then we've also had the debate about whether he wants to bring GPs straight into the NHS rather yeah. than the current arrangement where the NHS basically pays GP practices to do what they do. So there's lots of different facets there. I think the problem is for Labour, they don't want to get bogged down in a debate about privatisation unless it's directed at the Tories. So I don't think they have, they can make much headwind in this. Maybe it'll come up in the future and maybe the Tories will have something. You've got to remember back in 2019 and we had the big debate about the US trade deal. Oh, yes. And, that, and yeah. Labour did quite well then. Corbyn did quite well. Remember, he stood up in the debate with, with those, those documents, documents yeah. that, he'd, that had been leaked to him saying that the Tories want to sell the NHS to the Americans. That works really well. It doesn't work so well when you've got Labour shadow cabinet preaching the same things. Yeah, what's going on with streeting? Is he freelancing? Has his idea of what? himself as a sort of reforming health secretary in the future? 
future gone to his head? I think, I think it's really worth us talking about Wes Streeting a little bit yeah, because yeah. he is the most interesting outrider by far on mm-hmm. the Labour front bench at the moment. And, you know, he has been given licence to go further than anybody else, given licence to, as it were, say things that are unpopular in the NHS on the front page of the Daily Telegraph. But where he has to be careful is, as it were, spending virtual money that has not been signed off by the Labour Treasury team because they're trying to be very disciplined about that. I think that he came up with some really interesting thoughts about reform in the NHS over the past week. I thought that in particular this idea of a great expansion of primary health care centres where you've got doctors and nurses and physiotherapists and chemists all working out of the same building. That was part of the original promise and Mm. premise of the NHS back in the 1940s. And although there are places like that around the country, there aren't that many and it hasn't happened. I think it would be a very, very interesting way of trying to get people into basic diagnosis, basic triage care without them having to go into A&E and take the pressure off the big hospitals where the pressure is most intense. So I thought it was really interesting, but it's an expensive policy. Opening all of those centres, moving people into them and hiring the right number of staff would be an expensive policy. And we haven't heard from West Streeting or from Labour yet how they'd pay for it. I think this is one of the big problems with discussing Labour policy at the moment is that we're getting dribs and drabs week after week. We signal what they want to do and sorts of signals their priorities, but we don't yet have that comprehensive plan about how they want to go mm. about public sector mm. reform, for instance, how they want to try and address some of the more fundamental perennial problems within the NHS, because in part they have to decide how much money they have to do those things. So we're still in this sort of limbo at the moment where the Treasury team needs to work out, OK, are we going to raise taxes? Mm. Are we stick to the Tory spending plans, whatever we're going to do. And that Mm. bleeds through into every other policy issue that we have. So we're in a bind at the moment where we're trying to point out where Labour want to go, but we can't have a comprehensive debate about it. Absolutely. In that moment, all of this is seen through the prism of staffing costs and the industrial action and the strikes, which means that other health policies, which are inherently interesting, for instance, where Streeting's suggestion that we could become a completely tobacco-free nation Mm. and that there should be really strict limits on vaping, I think very provocative policies, perhaps not popular ones, I don't know, but really interesting. That's been put to one side. Nobody talks about it because we're so focused on the money and the staffing costs. Yeah, it reminds me of CNET's policy to ban single-use cutlery at the moment. Maybe not the key issue that the nation (laughs) are crying for a policy on. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the strikes because that is our second half. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth. Featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. You Ask Us. And our question from a listener today is, how is Labour responding to Rishi Sunak's anti-strike legislation? So Sunak wants to bring in minimum service requirements for key public sector areas like health, rail, firefighting, with the law enforceable in two different ways, allowing employers to fire workers who strike when they've been told not to strike and to sue unions that don't ensure a minimum level of service. There's all sorts of reasons why this might not work in practice. And our colleague Ido Vok, who works in Europe, has written about how they have these laws in France, Spain and Italy, but still workers go on strike there. But what is Labour's line on it? Because it's it's not really taking the line that it wants to defend the right to strike. I think the politics of this are really interesting and not very clear at this stage. Mm. So in Prime Minister's questions, as Freddie was saying, it was clear that Sunak thinks that he has Labour on a hook on this stuff and that he, the public, are with him, in that the public are very nervous of strikes where people are actually dying as a result or buildings are burning down as a result, and that therefore this is a good populist way of getting back into that argument. And Starmer equally clearly thinks the public are with him that and I th- it's very hard to judge but I think the big flaws in the legislation are indeed that they don't go for the unions institutionally when that kind of thing happens but they go for individuals no and it's worth noting that the legislation itself is quite bare even though this was in the 2019 Conservative Manifesto it does seem quite rushed for instance one of the key requirements is for ministers to set out what actually are minimum service requirements so you have to do that with the companies and then the companies give the unions whoever like a work notice which stipulates what they need to provide each day so that's all to be worked out and as you say Andrew it's got to get through parliament and lots of things but it is interesting in how it changes the politics because we've had some tentative polling come out already that says there is perhaps support for it but in the same poll you still get the public blaming the government for the strikes and completely I'm very negative about how they responded to it so I'm I'm not sure Labour need to get too bogged down in this debate as long as they keep the focus on the government are responsible for this they're the ones not having the Mm. conversations with the unions and they're the ones who have left the public sector in the state which requires strikes So I think this is more about political positioning sending messages, getting headlines than it is about actual workable legislation Yes, and I think that's why Labour's going on the line I think Streeting's called it the sacking the staff bill Starmer said in PMQs yesterday you're going from clapping nurses to sacking them so they're really focusing on that attack on individual workers which seems to be the thing that is least popular with the public and while Sunak is trying to use the line he's calling it minimum safety legislation even though that's not what it's actually called so really playing up the idea that they're trying to protect the public with it I think there is just such an open goal for Labour to say that we barely have minimum service at the moment and to be fair they have been kicking balls through it haven't they over the last few days yeah yeah and Andrew what does this say about what kind of politician Sunak is. And he's trying to give off this aura of a sort of reasonable managerial centrist. I think you called him a sort of Hindu nerdy numbers man. Bad, yes, that's it. Dad. Hindu, Hindu uh, centrist dad and also a bit of and a of course a numbers geek. man. And yeah, I'm the geek guy, you can trust me. I will sort out the absolute chaos left behind by Boris Johnson yeah. and Liz Truss. That's my agenda. And I'm kind of mainstream sort of guy. But this week I've been talking to a wide range of people ranging from Neil Kinnock through to Ken Clark. And they both made the point, those people, that actually Rishi Sunak 
is a right-wing conservative. He is not a sort of centre-ground conservative. Jeremy Hunt might be, but Rishi Sunak has always been on the Thatcherite edge of the party. He's very much small state in his background, his Californian background. He fundamentally doesn't believe that government should do much in many circumstances except get out of the way. That's where he's come from. Now, we haven't seen very much of that. But looking ahead, when we're asking ourselves through 2023, what is Rishi Sunak's vision for Britain? That is going to be a more and more interesting question. Is he really actually a Singaporean, less regulation, smaller state kind of conservative, cut taxes, cut the welfare bill? That seems to be where he's coming from. And if he's not that, what is he? Mm. Yeah, I think it is important to look at his ideology and understand where he is coming from. But there are so many constraints on him at the moment, it doesn't even really matter. I went through all the government bills that are going through Parliament last night for morning call, and there are about 25 of them. And it's very hard to pinpoint one, which they can go to the public in 24, 25 and say, look, this is what we've achieved. So many of them are basically responding to crises, whether it's uh, the, the repair bill. service bill, yeah, the repair of lots of different <laughs> things that aren't going to be able to create a narrative yeah. for Sunak, in part because he's inherited all these bills. Mm. And then he's got rid of many of the reforms that Liz Truss wanted to bring about, but he hasn't suggested an alternative. So I think that's going to cause him problems just because he hasn't got something to sell to the public, but it's also going to cause him problems with his party as well. He has a sufficient number of loyal MPs in his government to keep going. That's why he has a government. That's why we're not having resignations and the briefing isn't as extreme as it has been for the past nine months. But as soon as we get a very bad set of local election results, perhaps in May, you know, if he, if he doesn't give them enough to corral around in the budget, then he might have some problems down the line. And all of that basically means that he doesn't have the opportunity to implement those beliefs and say to the public, this is what I believe in and this is the sort of country I want to create. Yeah, it's a great yeah. irony of Rishi Sunak's chancellorship and premiership, isn't it? He's never been able to act no. on those sort of Silicon Valley-ish he, uh, instincts uh, that he Freddie's has. Freddie's quite right. He has always been constrained. I mean, when I was saying, what's his vision for the country? He has to, I think he has to move reasonably fast because there are other people prepared to stand to come into the yeah. gap. We had a certain Boris <laughs> de Feffel Johnson <laughs> talking at the Carlton Club this week, proclaiming the need for low tax new revived low tax conservatism and all of that something that is completely implausible the, the idea that they could be cutting mm. taxes at this stage is absolutely nuts i think but mm. nonetheless there's all that maneuvering around johnson's got his outriders nadine doris and others inside the conservative party already and i think freddie is right the, the maximum moment of danger this year will come quite early in may after those local election results which are bound to be bad for the conservatives I think if Johnson and co uh, try to oust Rishi Sunak, it really is game over for the Conservatives for the next 10 or 20 years, because I think another attempt to change the Prime Minister at that stage would be seen by the public not only as ridiculous, but unbelievably selfish and myopic mm. and uninterested in the future of the country. Nonetheless, it may well happen. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shikelian, my colleagues Andrew Marr and Freddie Hayward, and we're produced by Adrian Bradley. Our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a nice review. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.